I don't think there was any question ever for either Guy or I that we were going to start a business. I don't think there was really, uh, you know, in our family, my father and mother were both like, that's what you've got to do in life, period. You've got to go out there and you've got to start a business and you've got to make money, period. This is Brian Geister, and I want to express my gratitude for you tuning in to Holocaust Survivor Next Generation Podcast. My podcast series capturing some of the most enduring stories in history around adversity, perseverance, hard work, entrepreneurship, and generosity that truly have never been shared from the first generation, or maybe better said, the second generation of Holocaust survivors around the world. As a third generation family member whose grandparents were both Holocaust survivors, from Poland and Austria, the values that were passed down to me from my father around work ethic, integrity, supporting the Jewish community, and overcoming all odds have shaped the way that I see the world and hopefully my opportunity to make a positive impact. So today I have the privilege of having Guy and Philippe Weisberg, who are brothers, really the first time we've had brothers together on the podcast. Guy founded and grew a specialized logistics business in Antwerp, Belgium, to become the market leader in his segment. He sold the business after 15 years to Brinks, a Fortune 500 U.S.-based multinational that many of us know. He subsequently took on an executive management role within Brinks, heading up a standalone unit with close to 1,000 employees. Guy is currently also running a search fund to acquire and take a leadership role in a Canadian operating business. Guy is happily married to Danielle and his two sons that he's very proud of, Greg and Elliot. Philippe's career in real estate is equally as inspiring and has spanned over 25 years where he's acquired over $2 billion of commercial real estate in New York, Europe, and the Caribbean. As a serial entrepreneur, he has founded multiple real estate firms, including Madison Capital, Savannah Partners, and W Equities, amongst others. Philippe is happily married to Rosita, and they have a son, Joseph, and a daughter, Ali, who is currently in high school. Both brothers are passionate about supporting Israel and are involved in a number of causes to make the world a better place. Guy and Philippe, it's great to have both of you on the podcast today. Thank you for really investing the time and spending the time with me. It's a real privilege. Guy, tell us a little bit as we get started around the family background growing up prior to World War II? So it's interesting. My, my dad, actually both parents didn't speak much. And both parents are in one way or another Holocaust survivors or, or, or survivors of the, of the Second World War. Neither of them spoke much. And so really our knowledge is, um, is really based on bits and pieces that we heard over time, little snippets that we may have heard from relatives. Um, but it's all very, very vague. My, my dad was, um, was born in a town called Przemysl, which is on the border between Poland and Ukraine. There were seven kids uh, in the family, uh, five daughters, and, um, and then finally two sons. So the two sons were the youngest. Um, my dad was the youngest, he was the seventh child, apparently very mischievous, apparently uh, was often caught 
not going to school, not being at school when he should have been, um, but was very much an entrepreneur uh, at a very early age, um, selling cigarette, buying and selling cigarettes or helping in the family store. So the family had some kind of small grocery store and um, my grandmother, so my dad's mother was probably the brains and businesswoman. Um, apparently my grandfather was a very nice guy but would sit at the back studying all day. Um, apparently wasn't a great business person. Um, they were not religious. Um, they were probably traditional. Uh, and obviously, as the war began to approach, and certainly things became really tough in the store, and my father was kind of playing tricks to make people believe that the store was actually doing better than it actually was. So, for example, uh, he would take empty boxes and put them high up on the shelves where everybody thought there were goods there, but they actually weren't goods. And he was doing this when he was, uh, what, seven years old, eight yeah. years old, yeah. something around then, uh, you know, and, and that was his already his entrepreneurial bent. But like, you know, Guy and I have different, you know, we've heard, like Guy says, it's like if you had asked me, I would have said he, he grew up in Rivetage. And I don't even know where Rivetage is, but, you know, the rumor was there were more pigs than humans there. And I don't know where the Rivetage came in, but it's just because someone once gave him a, uh, a cigarette case that had written on a graduate of Rivetage University. It was some sort of joke. Oh, no, no. I know the story, but it's, well, it, it's a good story. But I don't know if, it's, if the podcast is, is the place to, to do this. Um, Brian, you tell us. I don't know how much time we have. And- well, I think we've got, we've got 40 minutes. I think it's really interesting. Obviously, each of you have your own unique perspectives. And as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about, you know, I grew up in like a Schmata 2.0 business where my, my grandfather came here with language barriers and built a clothing business in a flea market. And then my father built a chain of linen stores. And I'm thinking about, as I'm listening to your story around how we used to talk about the importance of having people in the store. Because once people are in the store, other people know that there's something really good in there and want to buy. And that mentality that is kind of shared from Poland, where our family was from, and, and, and you guys is a really interesting one. So, so Guy, talk about the, the transition from life before the war, and then the war happens, what that was like you know, for the family. I also think we should just add before the war that, you know, our mother was born actually in Belgium. Um, her, her, uh, her mother came also from Poland, but came before the war to uh, Belgium. Um, not really sure about the history there, Guy, you may know more than me, um, but just to kind of close it all up of the family, give her a little bit of time too. So she was in Belgium prior to the war. Uh, her, her mother was a very hard-working woman. She, she became a diamond broker and actually, I think, quite successful. Yeah. Um, but from the stories I heard when she did come over first to, to Belgium, she slept on the floor and worked very, very hard to, to kind of build the family and et cetera. But over to you on now the, the wars coming to Poland and Belgium. What happens there? So there are two. So, so again, both of our parents have, have a war story. My, my, in the case of my mom, her mother was able to 
uh, hide her or to get her hidden in a small village in the, in the south of Belgium. Um, it was uh, actually a priest that found a family. It was a little village. And they essentially took her in. She was six years old. Uh, and it was as if she was, she was uh, a daughter or a cousin from somewhere. And she, re she spent some of the time there and then made then my grandmother, who had been smuggled to Switzerland, was able to organize for her to be smuggled to Switzerland. So that's my mom. Uh, my dad was in a camp, in a work camp called Stalova Vola, um, which was, actually had po Polish workers that who were paid, and then Jewish workers who were essentially prisoners, uh, working prisoners. And they... Um, uh, he joined his brother, actually. Both he and his brother were there. And after near the end of the war, they were able to escape from the camp together with about eight other people. They hid in the forest for about three months. And then uh, the Russians had moved in and they were, um, they were rescued by the Russians. And it's actually an interesting story. The... the um, they had found German uniforms. So they were, they walk out of the, they walk out of the forest in German uniforms. Of these. Well, German coats, because it was cold. German so they had, stole, they had stolen the coats from the dead Germans who were wearing those. Correct. And, so, and then they, they walk out of the forest, but the Russians had invaded. And so the Russians see them, take them for, take them for Germans and arrest them. And they were taken to prison by the Russians, and it was only because there was a Russian soldier who spoke Yiddish that they were able to kind of get out of prison. But there are lots of stories which we've kind of reconstructed. Really, my dad didn't tell many, didn't talk at all. But one thing he did mention to me once um, was when he was taken in by the Russian soldiers and imprisoned, they were put in prison with Germans. And there was one German that was wounded that he was put in prison with, and he jumped on the German's stomach, and his intestines came out. I've never heard that one. Bizarre. Yeah, he told me that. That's one of the things he told me when I asked him the question, the one only time that he spoke very little. Wow. Um, wow. There was also a, a guard in the camp that they used to call Frankenstein, but because my father was very, um, shall we say, you know, entrepreneurial, I guess is the word, and a very good worker. The, the way he got into the camp was his brother was taken into the camp, and he was too young, so he took black shoe polish, rubbed it on his hands, and claimed that he was a skilled worker in munitions, which is what the camp was making. Correct. And uh, so... He got himself into the camp because his brother was there and he had no family, I think, at that point. Correct. So, so what had happened, if I can just interrupt, what had happened is in the town, again, this is what I've been able to reconstruct. His parents, but mother, father, and two of his sisters were shot in the t either in the town square or in the forest just outside of the town. Um, he had several sisters who had already left, three sisters had already left Poland. And so he had no other family, no one other than his brother who was in the camp. And that's the reason he, 
he went to the camp. Talk a little bit about where you guys were born. Where did you grow up? So I'm, I'm born in Belgium. Uh, my parents moved to South Africa when I was, uh, well, they moved twice, but really uh, uh, when, we, when I was four. And then Philip was born the following year in, 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 in Cape Town. And talk a little bit about just growing up, because now, Guy, you're in Canada, and at the moment, you're in the U.S., potentially, Philippe, heading back to Israel soon, we'll see. And we spoke about that last time. We had the privilege to be together. Um, how did you guys, from growing up, make your way to Canada in, in the United States? Well, the story is about our, our parents are much more interesting than I think us. But anyway, we'll go there if you want us to. So how did that happen? Well, South Africa was because of business. My father moved there for business. And, and uh, my brother and sister, who were born in Belgium already, uh, moved at very young ages to South Africa, where I was born. And then about 11 or 12 years later, moved back to Belgium. And I went to a boarding school in England called Cornwall College that doesn't exist anymore. Actually, we all did. We all went to that boarding school. I went to the younger age, obviously. And uh, Guy and my sister, Michelle, um, also went to, to the same Jewish boarding school. Um, and then when we graduated, you know, for me, I never spoke Flemish or French, uh, even though French and French was both my Guy's and Michelle's first language because we lived so long in South Africa. You know, I, I never picked it up. And so for me, there was kind of this natural idea of I was going to study somewhere that would be Anglophone. Um, and so America was the natural choice. And so that's kind of what happened. I went to America. He went to England, uh, to London School of Economics in, 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 in England, and subsequently to Stanford to do his MBA. It's incredible that you both are as entrepreneurial as you are. Guy, you starting a company, building it now, out, you know, looking um, you know, to acquire another business. Uh, Philippe, you and I have spoken about you love building from scratch. You build, it gives you the rush, and then you go on to building the next thing. As you think about your childhood and these values that were passed down to you um, in, in being entrepreneurial, what did you learn from mom and dad that really you think played a significant role? And, and, and you know, and, and, and Guy, I'm really interested. What do you think it is that, that, that Philippe really, you know, as you watched Philippe growing up, that has him, you know, be as entrepreneurial as he is. And, uh, you know, Philippe, I'd love to hear, you know, your, your view on, on Guy and how, you know, growing up really shaped from, from each of your perspectives on each other. So I, uh, so I will tell you, it's interesting. I, 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 number one, I think Philippe is probably more entrepreneurial than I am. And, you know, and I think it's interesting. My, my dad, you know, my dad had this thing for Philip because I think my dad saw a little bit of himself in Philip. You know, especially when Philip when he was young, Philip was always very cheeky. So, so Philip, in my mind, is far more entrepreneurial. Um, and actually, my business, you know, I mean, I, I come back from Stanford. I know I want to do something, and my father had a huge impact on. Um, on I, I would say my business, but both in terms of pushing me, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I, he was the one that pushed me probably to take bigger risks than I would have taken. You know, I'm a system, I'm a systematic guy. I like building step by step. I like to have a solid foundation. And my dad was like, you know, that's just, you know, 
go, go, just do, right? And 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 so, and and again, because I was in Belgium, my dad was in Belgium. I I think that had um, a huge impact on me, and and um, and you know, and one of the things I think that we saw from my dad. My dad was, you know, he had this is probably not politically correct, but he had huge balls. Um, he, he, um, he was, he took huge risks. He took huge risks and, you know, coming out of the war, he was already taking huge, huge risks. He was, you know, smuggling cigarettes, using Russian soldiers after the war. He was in Czechoslovakia. He was very instrumental in getting some of the first aircraft from Czechoslovakia to Israel for the big, early, in the early stages of, 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 um, you know, the Israeli air force. Um, he was actually went, got into, he was in prison in Czechoslovakia when there was this whole, when Stalin came in and turned over the government. Um, so, uh, I, I think, you know, I think that for me, that's what it was really, it was all about just, you've got to, you've got to move forward. You've got to do stuff. <laughs> it's interesting because you know, if we look at our parents, you've got the one side, which is my father, who very much was, yeah, you know, he had no fear. Yeah. And then on the other side, you've got my mother, who only has fear. And, you know, my closeness with my father, I think, allowed me to have a little bit more um, confidence in taking those risks. And I think, on the other hand, you know, what affected my brother a little bit more was my mother's kind of fit, we, we both have it. I have, any fear I have today comes from my mother. Any question of moving forward today on anything whatsoever is directly down the line from my mother. And I see it in Guy, you know, I see his trepidation in everything because my mother's question is always, are you sure? Are you sure it's gonna be okay? And I, I do think a lot of these things come from the war and come from their experiences in the war. And, and we, you know, we, we have taken those on and maybe, you know, to a certain extent that, that fear has helped us not go wrong. And, you know, that, that balls, as he has said, has allowed us to try and achieve something in our lives. Yeah. But I, I don't think there was any question ever for either he or I that we were going to start a business. I don't think there was really... Uh, you know, in our family, my father and mother were both like, that's what you've got to do in life, period. You've got to go out there and you've got to start a business and you've got to make money, period. You know, I, I don't think we even questioned otherwise. Did you, Dean? I don't think so, no. I mean, I, I might have done at university, but not really. There was a lot of family pressure to go and do, to, 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 to build something. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting you know, as I'm listening to you both and I'm thinking about how I was raised in my relationship with my father and mother, and I was told at a pretty young age, I could accomplish anything that I wanted as long as I gave it my all. And if I ever, uh, for my father, and if I ever got a C in school, which didn't happen too often, but if it happened, I was in my room for a week and I could come down for meals only. And it wasn't because I got a C, it was because my father was essentially saying, you're lucky to even be here based on our family background. And if you're not going to give this your all, why are we sending you to a private school? Right? Why are we working as hard as we are to give you this better opportunity than I ever had? And 
certainly your grandparents ever had. So it's interesting in listening to you both. And that's something that, you know, I think has been really helpful for me in knowing I can do something because my, you know, at a really young age, it was deeper and you can do anything you want to be able to do if you give everything your all. And so it's really interesting to hear that from you both. Now, in terms of the experiences that you guys have had or the, the values or kind of some of these, the family stories around the Holocaust and the concerns around it, have any of this haunted either of you? And as you guys have really thought about, you know, survival and, you know, anxiety that you guys have as you were kind of building companies and thinking about your own past? So I, I feel like I actually, in the end, had tremendous support from my father. My father was, I think, integral in both of our careers as we began them. Um, I spoke to my father very frequently about everything and only business. That was our relationship. And the one thing that I remember with my father is, you know, it, it didn't matter whether you were right or wrong. He had an opinion. And the opinion really didn't even have any data behind it. He just decided. And, you know, often, that often there were times, most of the time he was right, just because life experience allowed him to have that kind of instinct. But when there were times where I thought that I should go against him, the nice thing is, and I was wrong, right? The nice thing, and this is one thing I never forget, and that is when I would call him and say, you know what, I did that anyway, and it failed, his attitude was never like, I told you so. It was always like, okay, on to the next. Mm -hmm. And that was something that really helped me be able to fail or be able to make decisions and be able to do things with confidence because I kind of felt like it's okay. It's okay to fail. And I think being an entrepreneur, you have to have that confidence of, if I fail, it's not going to be the end of the world. We'll just do something else, start again, take another part. So, Guy, is there something similar to that? And it sounds like those conversations for Philippe were happening throughout his, his professional career and development. Is there something that you really remember from your childhood um, that gave you the confidence to really push forward? Maybe had, I spoke to my dad even more because I was in the same city as my, Philip had moved on to the U.S. I was in the same city as my dad. And we would have lunch together more often than not. So we were in the diamond industry. It was all, you know, all in one small geographic area. We'd get together for lunch. Um, he would keep telling me, he would, you know, part of it was, you know, I was stupid because I wasn't doing everything he wanted me to do. And it's interesting, he never, you know, I don't know about Philip, but he never kind of said, good job. He never complimented. He yeah. never... And, and it was really, it was interesting. He had one or two friends, very close friends, that would come to me in the Diamond Exchange. They would say, you know, you should know your dad's really proud of you. And, and it was just, but I never heard it from my dad. My dad would never say, hey, good job. And so in some senses, you had this kind of ambiguity. You know, he was pushing, 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 but, but there was never any feedback. But that's, I think that's the war, that's the story of the war, right? It was, he was driven and he was, it was extended to us. Very interestingly is that this, this idea of, you know, good job, 
which I think today in parenting is like the, the holy grail, right? This is what you've got to do for your kids. Neither of our parents ever told us ever we ever achieved a good job. And quite frankly, I think that's what pushed me to go where I was because you're always moving. You're never sitting back and saying, wow, I achieved something. You're moving forward. However, we're living in a different world and you can't help but parent the way you were parented. And I see myself parenting my kids in the same way, which in today's world may not be as appropriate. Yeah, and it's and it's interesting because I certainly a big portion of you know my work ethic has come from wanting that you're I'm proud of you that I it's really hard to get out of my father. And when he does say it every so often, it's actually hard for him. It's hard for him to communicate feelings because my grandfather I know didn't communicate a lot of feelings because he didn't know how to share them after what he'd been through in the Holocaust. So it's really interesting to hear that very similar connectivity between your family and ours. And that, that kind of dri- has driven us to, to want to be successful and want that support, but keep us really pushing forward. So it's you know, interesting you say that because those feelings, you know, we grew up, I think to a certain extent, and I think this goes through a lot of families who are Holocaust survivors and even gets passed on to the second generation, and even maybe the third generation is that, Having feelings is a luxury. And it's a luxury we were not afforded in the war. And therefore, get rid of those feelings because they're not going to help you. Um, You know, I I think in my family, I was definitely the most sensitive one. And that was a problem for me. It was very hard for me to kind of say, okay, let's get rid of these feelings because it doesn't help you move forward. Uh, But I I do think, you know, as you say it as well, and I, you know, reflect on, our history, that is something that I think does go through all Jewish people generationally uh, who come from families that went through the war. So as, as, as we sit here and you think about the lessons that you learned that are or aren't being passed down to the next generation, what are some of the things that you guys struggle with as you've ra- you're raising and have raised your children and trying to pass down these values around work ethic. So, so I don't. I never heard from my parents. You can be anything you want. I didn't. No. There was none of that. It was. There was none of that. It was just like, oh, like you're an idiot. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know. You're, yeah. Uh, you know. I. Uh, so it was interesting. My 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 business. This is a just time. My my business was very much, it was a logistics business and it was very driven by IT. In fact, that was my competitive edge because it was all about being low cost and fast. And, and that, you know, as I came up, I was the first in the industry that come, came up with, you know, using computers and using IT intensively. And my father would always walk into the office, see another box of computer and he would shake his hand and he would say, how stupid can you be? You, what are you doing with this box? You need customers. Go out and find customers. Stop playing with your, these toys. Go and go. And that was, there was never, and it was always pushing. There was never any, it was just, it was this driven. And, you know, I, I, it's interesting. My, my dad had a stroke. He had a stroke and, and um, pretty, a pretty serious stroke. Afterwards, he, he lost the power of his speech. So he would repeat the same thing over and over and over again. 
and there was one sentence. It's all he could say. Whatever he was trying to, he, he might be trying to tell you that of something, but it was only one sentence. Just, it's not what he was meaning to say. It's what came out of his mouth. It was, I want to make money. I want to make money. I want to make money to make money to make money to make money. That's all he would say. He might be asking how you were, but when it came out, it was, I want to make money. And I think that goes to, that's what it was all about. He, he always said to us, uh, he said to me anyway, he said, I will never allow, and I think this drove him, I will never allow myself to again be a victim like I was during the war. And for him, it was all about making money. So it, it, it wasn't making money to be rich, but it was making money so that no one could ever again put him in, put him down as he had been put down during the war. And I think also the one thing he had mentioned once is you cannot understand what extreme hunger does to you. He says this is something that no one can understand unless you've been through it. Extreme hunger can make you, uh, as he told the story of, you know, a, a friend of his as a kid, his father denounced him to the Nazis because he was so hungry, he needed food. And, um, you know, this is something I think that also was ingrained with him that, you know, that that whole feeling should never happen again. You know, I think those, those things are very, very important and, and gets ingrained in the next generation, no matter what. Yeah. He, he, I remember we, you know, read some kind of family dinner and one of us, I don't know if Philip was there. One of us says, Hey, don't you want to tell us a little bit about your experience during the war? And I remember my grandmother was sitting there and he turns to my grandmother and he says, they'll never understand. There's no, there's no sense because they won't understand. And he turned to us and he said, you can never understand when you stop being a human and you become an animal. And all you're doing is you just, all you care about is eating. And, Survive. you know, and, you, you, you lose, and he said, you, won't, you can't get it. You can't imagine it. And there's no sense in me telling you about it. So let's, let's switch gears for a second. Both of you obviously have had incredible success, but you also both are, are involved in the Jewish community and also charitable. Um, I'd be really interested in kind of, you know, what, what drove you to get more involved and make a difference in one of the causes that you've, you've been most active in supporting. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, Philippe, will you, will you start? Well, I actually think he is better positioned even than I am because he's been a lot more active in the sense of, um, you know, when he sold his business in, in, in Belgium, he actually rebuilt the whole Jewish school. Personally, took that role on, and that was his job. And so for years, he was basically charitable during that. I have never taken myself out of the business world to go and do anything, um, you know, that's charitable. Uh, you know, I'm involved in the charities that I'm involved in, and I feel very, very passionately about it. And like you mentioned, you know, Israel is a very important aspect of my life. Um, it has become an incredibly important aspect of my wife's life. It was never before that we lived there for a while and she, she got that bug. And I think my son has, has 
got that vibe too. And it's, you know, that idea, and, and it does come from that, you know, survivor instinct that now we have Israel, we've got to support Israel because Israel is never going to allow us, just like my father said, to become those animals again uh, that no one will look after. So, you know, my charitable stuff that I do really all revolve around Israel. You know, my wife and I, we are quite involved with APAC. We think that it's an important thing for Israel. We started in Israel a, a campaign to try and clean up Israel. You know, the one thing that upsets us all is you go on these great TU limb and you see the plastic bottles everywhere, etc. And it's a, partly an educational thing and partly. So we've been working with the JNF specifically to put together a program on that. Actually, we've just finished a movie that should be a movie at all. Kind of pitch on the whole thing that should come out soon and, and hopefully we'll continue doing that. Um, you know, and generally just, you know, charity starts at home and Jews are our home. So that's kind of where the charity goes. But I think he can talk a lot more to actually physically being involved and dedicating his time rather than resources, even though, you know, on this Clean Up Israel thing, both my wife and I have dedicated quite a lot of time and are in the forefront of it. But, uh, you know, that's as, a, as, a, as an aside from our business, whereas he dedicated his years to it. Yeah, it was, was a point in time. So I, 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 I actually started when I was still at school, uh, together with a friend we created. It was, it was the 70s. And what you're seeing on U.S. campuses today in terms of anti-Zionism, you know, we're just getting, it's becoming a big deal on, on, on U.S. campuses today. That was already, you know, in, in, in my university days or pre-university, there was already, in, in the U.K., it was already becoming a thing. So we created um, a national organization called the Association of Jewish Sixth Formers, which is the last two years of high school in the U.K. And we... Uh, we organized a conference, and the whole idea was preparing sixth formers for to, Jewish sixth formers, so that when they got to university, uh, they were they'd be able to uh, they'd be better equipped uh, to stand the ground. So Philip mentioned I was very involved in the Jewish school um, in in Belgium, and that was really I'd sold my business, so I had time, um, and it's. It's actually something I really enjoy doing. I took two years and it was, you know, we, the building had been condemned by the fire department. The tax authority had closed down the organization running the school. It was just one, one of the school, one of the, the principals had run off with a whole bunch of money. It was just, it was ludicrous. And the community had lost, this is a school that was started in the 1920s. It was, a, it was really the, the core, the nucleus of the, uh, of the Antwerp Jewish community. And, and so I got involved and, um, and we were able over a period of two, two, two and a half years to turn it around, get the community to believe in the school again, uh, rebuild a little bit the, 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 the educational staff. And we actually rebuilt the building too. Um, so it was a kind of a cool project, very satisfying project. Uh, since being in Canada, I've been, I was on the board and the executive of the Jewish high school here. Um, and I'm looking for my next project, but I think I'm into Jewish education because I think uh, that's the Jewish, that's tomorrow, right? It's all very well us doing our thing, but how do we ensure that the next generation is going to pick up the reins, pick up the reins in terms of consciousness, pick up the reins in terms of supporting Israel and supporting 
their local Jewish communities. Uh, and I worry, and I think education is the key to that continuity. And that's, that's been my interest. I'm looking for a way now to somehow put that into action. Well, this has been such a privilege to visit with you both, to have you on the podcast, to have an opportunity to get to know you both better. I believe your story is one that will inspire others to take entrepreneurial risks that maybe they're thinking about what they're doing today as a professional and saying, hey, I want to start this company. I'm going to go do that. Or um, I have had the privilege of being really successful. How can I give back? How can I be more involved? In, in the Jewish community or in supporting organizations that maybe are outside of the Jewish community even. So really appreciate you both sharing the time, sharing your story, sharing the story around your family history, um, and really grateful to have you both. So thanks so much, Guy and Philippe. It's truly, truly my pleasure. Thank you. Enjoyed it. This is Brian Geister. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. I'll be back next time with another story featuring an incredible philanthropist who's overcome all kinds of adversity and the horrors of the Holocaust, coming to North America and building an incredible company. Thank you so much and hope to see you again soon.